This is the weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dawkin and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation about what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today is February 10th. We're recording at the end of the market on Monday. What we saw happen was the Dow uh, rebounded. Trading started off a little bit choppy, but the Dow ended the day at 174.31 points or 0.6%. It was up. Um, the S&P 500 was up 24.38 points or 0.073%. Uh, VIX was down 2.78%, ending the day at 1504. A uh, couple big banner um, things to look at. Amazon ended the day up 2.6%, which was breaking $2,100 a share uh, for the first time. Netflix and Apple were both up 1%. Tesla was up 3%. Uh, we've seen strong corporate earning, uh, earnings. We had a warm January, which really kind of helped increase the non-farm payrolls. Uh, they rose $225,000 for the month. Um, and we saw unemployment, you know, tick up to 3.6%, but the labor force participation increased 0.2 percentage points um, as well. So we're now at 63.4% uh, labor force participation which is the highest level since June of 2013. In big news, uh, really been the segment of the last few weeks as it's affected markets, supply lines, um, international politics. You know, it's brought in international governmental agencies like the WHO, but we're going to be talking about China. And ultimately, they've spent $10 billion trying to contain the virus so far. Um, we've seen it spread uh, you know, mainland deaths past 800. Um, I mean, it's a running tally. Um, Grant, let's kind of talk about, you know, the Chinese response to this epidemic and, and the international response at large. Just the Chinese spending $10 billion, that's that's going to be huge. We mentioned it last week on the podcast that we're seeing a, an effect on the global supply chain from China. So I think that's huge. We're seeing, as you just mentioned, mainland China's deaths as of this morning were 813, and there was over 35,000 confirmed cases. We're, we're starting to see it spread globally. We saw there was a, a cruise ship in Japan with 70 victims that, that, are, that that's quarantined. So I couldn't imagine having to, to stay on a cruise ship for that long. Hopefully the all-you-can-eat and drink still, still applies while they keep you on lockdown there. But we're seeing Amazon pull out of a mobile phone in, uh, industry conference at in Barcelona. So I, I think the Chinese as a whole are really trying to uh, keep this thing under wraps, but with, with modern technology and, and planes and, and transport, global transportation being as easy as we're seeing that uh, it, it's spreading quite quickly. We might be kind of at the uh, peak. Um, there's some analysis, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine had a mathematical model that indicated the virus could reach its peak towards the end of the month. We've actually seen a decline in new re cases reported in Wuhan and across uh, the Hubei province at large over the last few days. This is difficult because, you know, it's taken people six days to show symptoms, but now then some days, some studies are showing that it's taken people up to 14 days to show symptoms. So that's just a much longer time period. And then they're might be making moves to a 14-day, you know, in-house in a lot of areas. Um, 
to ride it out. And if people see symptoms, then, then, you know, they get picked up and get medical attention. Definitely. Yeah. So the, the, the peak they're anticipating one in 20 people in Wuhan to, to have the coronavirus, which is still pretty significant. We also saw the illness now has killed more people than the SARS epidemic. And in 2003, it was also interesting how the Chinese government has come out and strongly dismissed that the coronavirus originated from a military lab or was part of biological warfare, uh, which if that is the case, that could really stir up some some schemes of, of Chinese biological warfare. We saw Senator Cotton say that it's interesting how Wuhan was the epicenter of the outbreak, and that's where China's uh, only lab for deathly pathogens are, too. So we're, we're already seeing people start to, to draw connections there. Uh, but I mean, hopefully the, the peak is, I don't want to say hopefully, but hopefully the peak is in soon so we can get a handle on, on the epidemic. Yeah, I, I mean, of course a lot of it was kind of it's exacerbated because it was contained and you know the doctor who was really kind of acting as the whistleblower you know eventually got sick and so a lot of the stomachs he died he oh he died he died so he died over the weekend and then also i think it was interesting how there was uh, the main lawyer who was posting about real situations in wuhan and everything he uh, disappeared over the weekend as well so we're, we're seeing that there there is a response to it that uh the chinese are taking to their own hands in some aspects he's yeah no i didn't see he had died I, I mean i saw that he had gotten sick but that's that's pretty wild um kind of happier news we've seen u.s productivity <laughs> rebound for the fourth quarter um labor costs have been gradually slowing um the labor department you know, said on Thursday that non-farm payroll productivity, uh, we're talking about, you know, hourly output port worker, uh, increased at 1.4% at an annualized rate last quarter. Um, it had unexpected, it had decreased at an unrevised uh, 0.2% pace uh, between July and September. And that was like one of the biggest drops since uh, going back into 2015. So uh, we've got, you know, increased productivity. Um Hours worked has risen a little bit, uh, 1.1% in the fourth quarter, which was um, down from the 2.5% pace in the third quarter. But Sluggish productivity may be one of the reasons the, the economy has struggled to achieve the, the growth that the Trump administration targets of 3% annual growth. We, we talked about we, we missed that number last year. It was interesting to see how some economists estimate the, the economy growth at 1.8% and that the, some of the reason for this productivity is shortage of workers. And then they're also talking about the impact of, of drug addiction, which we have talked about on, on the podcast before. But that's definitely something that it's the first time I've seen an economist actually point to that in terms of, of productivity, which was, I thought, uh, a big thing to note. Uh, also, one thing about productivity is it could the reason why we're, we're seeing a rebound is uh, capital expenditures. Yeah, capital expenditures and um, and then increased labor force participation, right? Too. Yeah. Well, and and productivity, we, we we may not have a good gauge on how technology is actually impacting the stat. So they they may be looking at how how technology is imp- impacting the calculation moving forward. Yeah, the only like metric that I guess could be vexing is the hours worked, right? Because that's that's remarkably low considering you know. What it, what it has been recently. Um, so I think that's maybe firms cooling down on overtime and full-time and everything else, you know, as they gauge what's going on, you know, with some of, some of the 
some of the things we've been you know talking about and moving towards automation as well yep uh, you know, kind of coming off the productivity, we've seen jobless claims fall to a nine-month low. Um, so, you know, initial claims for state employment benefits decreased by 15,000. So uh, the seasonally adjusted numbers uh, that ended, you know, February 1st were 202,000. Um, so, you know, claims are down, um, you, know, you know, further indicating that, uh, you know, people are back to work. Unemployment still near half-century lows. We saw hiring slow at the end of last year with the trade tensions and recession fears, but the job market really proved to be resilient. This is the 112th month of, of adding jobs. One thing to note that we, we you did mention at the start of the podcast here is that the unusually warm weather lifted employment in construction and hospitality sectors, which usually we, we would see a slowing at this point in the year in, in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, so that that's just something to note why there may be uh, still continued resiliency in the job market. Yeah, and, and, and actually when we look at the four-week moving average, uh, which could be a better indication because it smoothed some of the week-to-week volatility, uh, we saw that fell, you know, 3,000 to 211,750 last week. So this would be the lowest uh, number since April when we're looking at that four-week moving target. Uh, I mean, one thing that we're, despite, you know, heating, a heating economy and, you know, um, still low levels of unemployment and increased wages, we're still seeing um, 10-year treasuries slide, uh, despite the fact that we had such a strong January jobs report and despite the fact that we had such strong January numbers overall. Um, so, I mean, and we've, we've talked about this element of, you know, there's a lot of need for foreign markets to get any kind of yield at all. So the U.S., you know, kind of exposes itself as the natural beacon uh, when we're talking about a good balance between, you know, a solid credit risk and then also in terms of a yield. But this has really created a dynamic where traders are a lot less interested in job reports uh, than they have been historically. Um, but let's dive into that a little bit and why – we used to see a lot more movements uh, based on job reports than we do now. Well, before the financial crisis, jobs data were really looked at as a, a good signal about what the Federal Reserve was going to do. Because uh, the Federal Reserve, if we think about what their main purpose is, is to maximize, maximize employment and stabilize inf- uh, inflation. And so um, with a tighter labor market, that would push wages up in consumer prices, therefore pushing up uh, inflation. But as we've seen recently, inflation has been quite dormant. And therefore, um, this may be one of the reasons why the we're not really seeing the the traders go crazy with the jobs report because we have seen such low unemployment, but yet we still haven't seen that that push up in, in wages that we would anticipate. Uh, so that may be one of the reasons why that the the jobs report doesn't impact what the Fed's actions are, are going to do moving forward because we've seen inflation stay relatively low and then also uh, that wages aren't, aren't really increasing. So therefore, it's not impacting the Fed's action as it, as it used to be before the financial crisis. Right. When we're looking at personal consumption expenditure inflation, I mean, that slipped from 2 to 1.6%. So, so, I mean, there's really, you know, pushback on the economic foundations of the Phillips curve. Uh, we, you know, there's this really interesting economist article was talking about how in uh, downtown the uh, Tokyo, so the financial district, uh, 
Ruinochi, um, you know, 9.30, 9.30 on Friday nights, uh, you know, on that first Friday, uh, traders would just leave the bars and then go back to their desk to see the job data <laughs> coming in. But the economist said um, it wouldn't blame them for kind of sticking around for a couple more drinks now. <laughs> yeah, well, I I also think one thing is is that traders are, are still paying attention to the jobs report, but instead of actually how many jobs were, were being added. It's more what wages are doing. Because we saw in February of 2018, there was a, a large jump after, uh, there was a large jump in the average hourly earnings and then flat unemployment. So we saw a spike in, in bond yields right around then. But uh, I think when we see wages and, and pay growth really lose momentum, I think that's why we're traders are, are losing interest. Right. I mean, when you look back, um first day of the report in 2004, um, five-year treasury yield moved by 0.17 percentage points. And then um, 2019, uh, you know, they barely changed, right? Moving less than 0.04%. So on the publication, which really highlights a lack of, you know, lack of zest, so to speak. But yeah, overall, they just don't have the same reaction as they used to. Oil is now the been dropping at the end of this last year, but now we're looking at historic lows. Um, so, I mean, natural gas prices had traded uh, $1.86 per million British thermal units on Friday, which was up a little bit, but it's almost 30% below where they traded um, a year earlier. When we're looking at a lot of other benchmarks uh, like the Japan-Korea marker, which is the spot price. When we're looking at liquefied natural gas that also closed at an all-time low um so there's a lot of reasons for this but um let's kind of just hop into them well i think the biggest one is is warmer as winters in the northern hemisphere uh just if we think about the there's the train <laughs> uh if if we just think about uh just to start at 2020 we saw you said 30 percent since where it traded a year earlier but since the start of 2020, we've seen that drop 15% in natural gas prices. Warmer winters, we're seeing that uh, Asia and Northern America have the warmest winters in, in, on record right now, and Europe has the second. Uh, we saw that Russia has such balmy winter that they had to have snow trucked in for Moscow for, for New Year's. Uh, so if we think about warmer winters, that's going to drive the demand down for oil and gas to heat homes and workplaces. And so that that's going to be a, a drastic impact on the natural gas market if people don't need to heat their houses like they do. I mean, think about how warm it is here in sunny Montana. Yeah, no, I was talking about how in Russia, bears came out of hibernation, some of them on New Year's Day, <laughs> which is horrifying. I'm glad that didn't happen here, but <laughs> especially on the slopes. But um, but yeah, I mean, warm, warm, warmer weathers is definitely a big, big segment. But then uh, we should look at kind of a rapid increase in supply too. I mean, we found new projects on the U.S. Gulf Coast. And then there's also been uh, another decreased um, in demand, China largely due to, you know, the coronavirus, coronavirus. but other developed um, Asian economies as well. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. We're seeing more supply and, and less demand. So therefore, that's going to collapse the price. Uh, natural gas prices really globally because of the weather, there's there's less of a need. So that's driving demand down. We saw U.S. futures trading at, at lowest levels for this, this time of year since the 1990s overall. Yeah. Um, I mean, when we're looking at 
you know, the decline of um, $800,000 barrel days, uh, decline in demand that's, you know, equates to that's t- looking at, you know, Turkey's entire um, energy consumption. So it, it is a it's a big hit. Um, and, you know, I imagine there are some, you know, people with a more environmental friendly persuasion in climate change who can't help but, you know, be playing the world's smallest violin. You know, the fact that it's at the end of the day, warmer um, temperatures that are really, you know, taking a huge hit in oil profits. But yeah, oil profits, but also burning natural gas for, for heating of homes and businesses is really only 12% of greenhouse oil emissions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just one thing to note also is a, a key measure for heating demand is known as heating degree days. And in the U.S., the 10-year average, we're, we're 12% below as of today, 14% lower in Asia, and 13% in Europe. So we're just seeing a, across the board in, in uh, the Northern Hemisphere the, the, the decrease for, for heating demand. Let's, let's hop into Huawei. Um, so, I mean, we, we didn't really talk about this, but uh, you know, there was that UK decision um, to allow Huawei into the 5G uh, markets that really kind of started uh, Boris Johnson, Prime Minister Johnson, and President Donald Trump off to a rough start. Going um, at it. But uh, there's more uh, to the story than that. We've seen, um, you know, the uh, Chinese and the Russians coordinate you know, uh, on Huawei technology and 5G technology. We've seen Russia uh, kind of use some of this technology to uh, further their more or less um, cyber wall, you know, the one that similar to China has, you know, it's a wall on a lot of social media sites. And I mean, Russia is not that extent, but, you know, you can use the technology to kind of further stifle, um, you know, a lot of a lot of media and press out there. Um, so, it's it seems like it's just these transatlantic you know warnings are you know becoming more more commonplace and we don't really have a good handle on you know the relationship that the company is operating in as it kind of you know uh you know kind of cozies up to both both moscow and beijing you wouldn't anticipate China and, and Russia being that close, but when when you think about the new technology cold war that really has begun in, in the past cold uh, the last couple of years between uh, the U.S. China, that that Russia would align themselves more with the Chinese than the Americans, as we think. Uh, but you know, China and Russia together, they bring different skills to the table, and they want to combat American influence around the world. So I, I can see why they're they're teaming up together. I, I think it's pretty worrisome if we think about the progress on anti-USAI uh, between China and Russia with with uh, with the company right in the middle of it. Uh, overall, I, I think it's something that we really need to watch out moving forward, especially as we, we see uh, Huawei's technology being used in, in UK. I, I think that uh, President Trump is absolutely right to be uh, to be offended and and a little disappointed with Boris Johnson in the UK for for allowing that and the the UK is really not in a strong levered position to to really do that because now more than ever they need a good trade deal with the United States and I and I really hope that the U.S. uses this against them moving forward. Yeah, I mean I understand it, but at sometimes you have to realize when you're kind of behind on the curve as we found ourselves, um, you know, in terms of 5G technology in a lot of ways. Um, so 
we're looking at responses to that. Um, you know, the attorney general, um, we're talking about Barr, William Barr. He was talking a speech uh, late last Thursday that we should be considering a controlling stake in um, a couple mobile network equipment providers, namely Nokia and Ericsson. Uh, Nokia being, you know, the Finnish company and Ericsson being, you know, the large Swedish one. Uh, this is fascinating because it is the stance of a command economy. Um, you know, it is it's something where we're we're not as comfortable, nor do we have as much experience in the government. You know, investing large stakes into uh, you know corporate equity and, and then and then especially and so technology that, companies, especially technology companies. But we are in a position where we're trying to balance you know historical like you know like beliefs in 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 free market regulation but then at the same time we're seeing uh the power that the tech companies have and how they're almost acting like interstate actors so it's like you almost need a a strong a strong fist to combat some of that as well mr barr i i think he's worried about the right things i think uh, Huawei building a dominant global power and 5G network can really compromise the United States security. And I think that that's something that that is really worrisome moving forward. So uh, if we think about Cisco, who's already partnered with uh, Ericsson before, uh, maybe maybe a good target. And it makes sense because uh, Nokia is, what, 10 percent of the GDP in, in Finland, whereas uh, Ericsson in the Swedish economy is is a lot larger and then also the Swedish may not have the the same rejection that the Finland uh, government does but I I personally think it it may make sense moving forward because there's we're going to have to combat Huawei moving forward and so if this is the way to get it done then that's the way we should move forward yeah yeah I mean yeah if Cisco partners up obviously that could be um, a market partnership um, equation and but if the U.S. government does it then I mean, as you alluded to, that'd just be the Finns would interpret that as a huge like overstep, that, yeah, yeah, overstep um, on you know what's a sovereign economy and, and then their largest company, which is ten percent of their right, ten percent of their market. They're not going to want no, <laughs> the United States winner. coming in and telling no. them <laughs> to, telling them what to do. But I but I think I think the Cisco partnership makes sense. They've already partnered with Ericsson before. Uh, it, it, it's bigger. It'd be an ally. They, they tap into different markets, and then you know, Swedish economy isn't as dependent as the Finland economy is is on Nokia. So I think that that could be an interesting partnership, and then we would have a, a European and, and American alliance there that that could become uh, or combat the the global position of Huawei moving forward. I think we're at the point where we have to stop. We can't be angry at if a country like Britain goes to Huawei if we haven't provided a compelling alternative. Um, I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. So, Capitalism at its finest. Okay, you're right. Capitalism at its finest. And uh, there's times in the Cold War where even countries aligned to us would be looking at KGB technology. And it's so, I, of course, we don't like it, but, and, and we'll, we'll obviously have a, you know, a strong line against it, but there needs to be the alternative in order for us to, you know, actually, actually get what we want. Um, yeah, let's talk about, you know, we're getting close to half an hour. Let's just kind of give some segments on, you know, what we're looking at coming up. I know you got a 515 flight to New York City tomorrow, so that'll be an early one, but. 
Always fun flying out of Bozeman. Got to get that early morning flight. But one thing that I'm looking forward to, or I guess it's not looking forward to, but see what the fallout may be, is we saw that uh, the United States has charged four members of the Chinese military with the hacking of Equifax a couple years ago. I think that this is really shows that the Chinese are their willingness and disregard to the agreement that we had with under President Obama in 2015 to refrain from hacking and cyber attacks. This is a d- direct breakage of that. Uh, and it really puts our American intelligence officers at risk by taking their personal information and stealing their names, birthdays and security, num- uh, social security numbers, excuse me. And, uh, and the fact that we're seeing the Chinese military responsible for this, I, 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 it, I'm a loss for words for it. I, I mean, I, I kind of suspected it was either Russia or the, or the Chinese, but the fact that now we're we're charging them after uh, you know a couple years of investigation, I, I it's really curious to see how the Trump administration uh, moves forward with that information. Yeah, I mean, I'll be. I actually haven't you know um, read this story yet, so it, you know you're telling me about it, and I'll have to you know look into it because it's. I mean, it might be a rabbit hole that, you know, takes a few hours, but so it's, it's, you know, present day weekend, so I might be looking to it then. But, um, I mean, what I saw today was mostly some of the new details for the budget have been outlined. Uh, You're looking at big cuts across, you know, non-defense spending, uh, namely student loan forgiveness. Uh, We'll see. Um, I mean, the last few budgets have been... Everyone gets what they want, right? Because you have a Democratic-controlled Congress, you got a Republican Senate, you got a Republican executive. So it's just kind of, you know, we've been everyone's matched. But um, I mean, we'll see. We'll see how they play it out and what will be cut. But um, it's uh, student loan forgiveness. It would be an interesting because that's actually it's a popular thing across the country. So we'll see how much they take an axe to it at the end of the day. Um, you know, I, I I know like now, you know, we're many, many years into a recovery, so it might be time to, you know, tighten the belt. But I'm just going to be looking at, you know, the different policy points where that happens. And we must mention that we have uh, New Hampshire next week. So we'll see if the Democrats can not step on their own feet like they did for the Iowa caucus uh, moving forward. But um, I guess those are on the horizon. Yeah, New Hampshire's coming up. And, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess Bernie's kind of winning in the straw polls, but Pete's, Pete's, you know, looks like he's kind of coming behind, like, um, you know, those two in Iowa. So, uh, which is interesting, right? Because Pete's, Pete's clearly taking some of Biden's momentum. But, Definitely. Uh, yeah. He's positioning himself now as the new, uh, central candidate of the Democratic Party. I think, I think Biden's slipping off quickly and, We'll see what happens with uh, with Pete and Bernie moving forward. Yeah, I mean, well, Biden even had a weird attack on Pete where it's just, you know, you're not Barack Obama, and then Pete goes, yep, yeah, but you're not Barack Obama either. You know, so it's, <laughs> I don't know, it, it'll be, I mean, I get, I mean, Biden, you know, he was he was a member of, you know, the cabinet, and he was, a ended you know, ended his term as a popular president, and, and he was definitely adored by his party, so we'll see what happens there, but I don't know if that's the way you undermine, you know, the rise of Mayor Pete, so to speak. But All right, so kind of wrapping up on half an hour, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we're out.
The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.